I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and um, take one out from in front of you, in the pew in front of you, and uh, you can turn to page 958. That's 1 Corinthians 11 in the New Testament in that uh, pew Bible there in front of you. So far in our study of 1 Corinthians, we've been uh, working through what Paul has to say to the church at Corinth. Uh, He has dealt or answered many questions, and he's dealt with some serious problems in the church there. Uh, They had problems with following after human wisdom instead of God's wisdom. There were some who were indulging in immorality and claiming that this was a proper use of their liberty in Christ. There were others who were arrogant or proud, some who were greedy, and so uh, Paul begins systematically answering or dealing with all the problems in the letter. When we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we come to some problems in the area of worship. Worship problems. I like to divide chapter 11 up into two parts, two, uh, two halves, if you will, in the, in the letter. The first half has to do with uh, women in head coverings. That's what we'll be dealing with this morning. And then this evening, we'll be talking about some problems that were occurring at the Lord's table. Of course, we'll also hear uh, from the Callens as they give a report uh, this evening. Uh, Before we get into this, though, I need to make a few disclaimers this morning, uh, as the nature of our topic is a a touch unusual for us as an assembly. First, I want to say that this is a difficult text to understand, and it will require much teaching, perhaps more teaching uh, than is normal for us in a Sunday morning sort of setting. But that's okay, because we're text people, and we want to understand the truths of Scripture. Uh, Second, I want to say that Paul is dealing with a particular problem in an ancient Greco-Roman culture. There'll be times when Paul's instructions and commands woven throughout this text today will sound a little bit foreign to us, like they're coming from a different time, and that's because they are. 2,000 years ago, Paul laid out these commands for the church at Corinth. And then finally, I I want to also, as as way of disclaimer, say uh, what Paul gives us here. Uh, at times, will be very straightforward commands to women. At times, it might feel as if what he's saying is chauvinistic or authoritarian, but of course it's not. Well, the Holy Spirit has led him uh, to say these things. And uh, yet, I, I think some of, the, some of the reasons why it might strike or, feel, or make us feel that way is because of the sort of culture in which we live in today. As a matter of fact, I remember the first time I was studying this text uh, years and years ago as a, as a young preacher, newly married, and I was in the study for hours. I remember that week, scores of hours, this text perplexed me, still does in some ways. And I remember I just needed a break. I was in the study, and so, you know, I, I couldn't see my way out of the text, could barely get out of the room, you know. And so I, I went out of the, the study, and i never forget, I, I came and I, I, I saw the first person I met was my wife, Carissa, my new wife, Carissa. And she could tell something was wrong, and so she asked me, she says, Brent, what, what's going on? I said, well, I'm just saying this text, it's really hard. And she says, well, what text is it? And I said, well, it's uh, women and head coverings, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll never forget what she said after that. Uh, she says, well, Brent, I sure hope you come out on the right side in this one. <laughs> That's a little window into our marriage, of course. (laughs) Many of you already know at this point in in your journey. Regardless of what the text says, we are text people. And God will help us to understand uh, this text if we apply ourselves. How many of you have ever heard a sermon on women head coverings, 1 Corinthians 11? 
So I thought, not a lot. Uh, so pay attention today. This might be the first and or the last sermon you ever hear on the subject. It has a chance of being the best sermon you've ever, you ever will hear on women in head coverings. So uh, let's look at the text here today. The way I want to work through it is I want to first make some textual observations. I kind of want to suppress our desire to apply it to our lives at the beginning. So let's make textual observations. We'll go through the text uh, making five statements, okay, well, five points in the outline. And then when we're done with that, the last 10 minutes or so, I want to look at practical ramifications. Okay, so we'll discipline ourselves to look at the text, and then we'll think about what does this mean for us today. So as we look at the text, I divide it up into five sections. The first section is what I call the basis for head coverings. Or Paul is establishing the headship principle in verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 2. Paul says, uh, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. In verses 2 and 3, Paul's establishing the headship principle for life in the Christian church. And of course, this text can be a little bit, even at the beginning, can be a little bit hard to understand, and there's a controversy about it that all relates to the word head that's used, especially in verse 3. Of course, if I would use that English word, sometimes the word head, would, we'd think of, you know, our noggin, right, or whatever you want to call this up here. That's the, the literal way to use it, and there are sometimes in this text when I think Paul is talking about literal heads, However, there are other times when it appears that Paul is using it metaphorically as well. It's a picture of something. And the controversy about this text, at least at the beginning, there's all sorts that we'll see throughout. The the main controversy is, does head equal authority or something else? If in this text, the word head metaphorically means authority, then the way you take it would be this. God is the head or the authority over Christ. Christ is the authority over men, and men are authorities over women or over their wives. Okay? And uh, if taken this way, the way that you would explain it within the Godhead would be to describe the voluntary submission of Jesus Christ to the will of the Father when he became a man. He came under, he submitted himself. Although both Jesus and the Father are God, they're one, Jesus came under and submitted to the authority of the Father. And then Christ would be the authority over men, and then tra- tracing down through the argument, then he's establishing the idea that uh, this male headship, or men or the authority over women, whether that's a father or a husband in some cases. However, there's another way to take it, and Uh, Some people will suggest this, especially in the last several years. Some people say, no, headship equals source. So if you're taking notes and you want to understand verses 2 and 3, you could say headship equals authority or headship equals source. And so some scholars more recently will say that when Paul is talking about the word head, in some cases, he is describing the fact that 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 woman was sourced in man. Okay, sourced in man. And in English, we use this word sometimes a little bit like this as well. When we talk about like the head of a river, right? The head of a river would be the source of the river. And so the way, if you take it this way, you'd understand this text is woman is sourced out of man. 
Okay, she comes from the rib of man in the garden originally. She comes from his material. She's sourced in man, but then you keep going. Man is sourced in Christ. Okay, probably speaking of the fact that Jesus was active in creation in some way or another. But then, if you follow the argument, keep going through the, the passage, it would say Christ is sourced in God. And to me, that's where that interpretation runs into some significant problems. Because if you're going to say that Christ is sourced in God, it seems as if you're making him some sort of created being or an offspring of God the Father or something. And so I would suggest that this view, which is normally espoused by some within churches today, that would be egalitarian. Ever heard that word before? Versus complementarian, which would be more similar to what our church would teach historically throughout the 30 years. That, that that interpretation of the text, that headship equals source, should be rejected. It should be rejected because there are no Greek dictionaries that ever give that as an option. And that word, that Greek word, is never used that way in any religious Greek literature in the first century. So it's much better to say that in verses 2 and 3, Paul is establishing the headship principle. That God was an authority over Christ in the incarnation. That Christ is an authority over men. And men are in some ways an authority over women or over the wife. That leads us to the second uh, section in the text. Here I call, or I want to look at some negative ramifications concerning head coverings. Verses 4 through 6. Okay, so some negative ramifications here. Women must cover their heads and men must not. And in this text... Paul will give two ramifications if women choose to neglect this practice in the church. In verses 4 and 5, I think the point that he is making is that if women do not cover their heads in corporate worship uh, when they're praying or prophesying, they dishonor their heads. Look with me at verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays, or woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now before we look closely at verses 4 and 5, there are two foundational qualities of this practice I want to bring to light. First, I I want to make the point that culturally, women wearing head coverings in the first century was common practice. Uh, for this, I use uh, a statement from John Walvoord, the old theologian. He, he said this. He said, The preponderance of evidence points to the public head covering of women as a universal custom in the first century in both Jewish culture and Greco-Roman culture. So Walvoord's saying, as he looks at the evidence, it doesn't matter what culture you look at, women were wearing head coverings normally in society and culture. He goes on to explain that a head covering was normally a piece of the outer garment that would be pulled up over the head of a woman. But the point I want to make initially or foundationally is this was a common practice in their culture. But then the second point I want to make is not only was it common, I want to suggest that when it comes to religion or religious services, that this was a liberating practice for women. Because we tend to look at it and say, you know, Paul's given like commands about like the way I wear my hair or what, you know, what I do. That seems to be very confining. 
However, I want to suggest this is liberating, especially for Jewish women who were used to worshiping in the temple or tabernacle. It's interesting, as you study the first century and you see how Jewish women were treated, they're not treated in many of the ways that we would be at all familiar with in our culture today. So, for instance, uh, a man could divorce his wife for just about any reason, according to some rabbis in the first century. So if, if another woman became more attractive to this man than his wife, he could write her a bill of divorcement and, and go and marry someone else in that culture. Or if she uh, had the wrong sort of offspring, and the man really wanted a, a boy, she had a girl, that would be legitimate grounds by some rabbis for a man to pursue a divorce with his wife. Or, I mean, in some cases, even one case where if a woman burned the family meal, some of you men have been looking for the, no, I'm just kidding. If she burned the family meal, that could be legitimate grounds for divorce. You know, this is uh, also true, though, in the way that Jewish women would worship. If you understand the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, you know that women weren't even allowed to enter into the same physical location as the men to worship. It says you, you got the Holy of Holies, and just outside the Holy of Holies, you'd have the court of priests, and outside of that, you'd have the court of the Israelites. And you'd think that any Israelite person might go in there, but no, that was just for the men. Because outside of the court of the Israelites, you had a 60-yard by 60-yard square, down six steps from the court of the Israelites, called the court of the women. And that's as close as a woman could get to worshiping God in the Old Testament era, within Judaism, in the tabernacle or temple. And so what I want to suggest here at the beginning is that when Paul says, women, you can worship and participate in the service, the only thing you need to do is you need to cover your head when you're praying or prophesying, that this would be a liberating practice for especially Jewish women. Now looking back at the text, you look in verse 5, I want to notice when they were supposed to cover their heads. It says they're supposed to cover their heads when they prayed or prophesied in the church. The word prayer here, I think, speaks of corporate prayer. Prayers that were done audibly at corporate gatherings in the house churches of Corinth. So when a woman would pray in, co- in a corporate meeting, audibly she was to cover her head. Uh, the word prophecy here is a thorny word. We won't get into specifics. If you want to know more about prophecy, come back in a few weeks when we go through 1 Corinthians 14, because we're going to talk about prophecy uh, there. I'll just say here that prophecy involved new revelation from God. God would reveal himself through prophetic utterances to the congregation. And this is different than preaching or teaching. Preaching or teaching was expounding upon revelation that's already been given. Prophetic utterances would be giving new revelation to people. And one of the reasons I know they're different is because women are, women are allowed to prophesy. Prophecy. I, I'll mix that up about 20 times. Prophecy in the church. They're expected to, in a sense. But there are other texts of Scripture that say that women are not to be teaching or preaching in an authoritative way in the local assembly. And so as we uh, come to this text, there are some negative ramifications if women do not cover their heads in worship uh, when they're praying or prophesying 
And one of them is if they do this and they cast off the head covering, this would mean that they dishonor their head. You see that in verse 5. They dishonor their head. I told you this is heavy teaching, okay? But it's kind of fun, isn't it? And it's obscure in places, and it's going to get a little bit more obscure before we're done. Okay, but they dishonor their head. And the question there is, what head is Paul talking about? Is, are they dishonoring their physical head, their noggin, their melon, whatever? Or are they dishonoring their man? And I would lean more towards the other one. Okay, so if a woman casts off the head covering in the local assembly and refuses to put it on when she's praying or prophesying, they'd be a dishonoring her man. If she's single, they'd be her father. If she's married, they'd be her husband. Okay, and so uh, we're making it through the text, aren't we? Let's look at verse 6 to see another negative ramification. The way I'd summarize verse 6 is this. I I think Paul says it would be shameful for women, or he'd say, if it is shameful for a woman to shave her head or cut off her hair, then she must cover her head. Okay, look with me at verse 6. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife or woman to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. This is an interesting verse if we're going to try to understand it. And what's interesting to me is what is the logic behind the verse? Okay? And I would summarize the logic in, this, in, in two ways. At least this is my opinion. You could confront me afterwards. We can, you know, we can deal with it. If you disagree, that's fine. Good people disagree in this text. Uh, but first, I think Paul, what, for, for some reason, Paul is suggesting that long hair on a woman requires a covering when praying or prophesying in the church. Now, we might not know why that is the case. But for some reason, in this text, it appears to me that that explains the first part of verse 6. Long hair on a woman requires Uh, when she's praying or prophesying, for there to be a covering over the hair. So long flowing hair while ministering the church was an issue for Paul at this time in this culture. Perhaps in some ways it was distracting to the public worship of the assembly. It may be that because of the sort of conservative culture that they were in, that it was in some ways seductive for a woman to have loose flowing hair when they would gather in the assembly, and it'd be distracting in that way. Or it could be, and I just want to take a moment to explore the idea, it could be that it was revolutionary. It was revolutionary. It was abnormal. It should be pursuing some sort of agenda. I want to shed just a little bit of light on this text from uh, study of the culture of ancient Corinth. In Roman culture, in the first century, women would be held accountable for the way that they dressed. I was reading one his historian. He has a PhD in history and a PhD in theology. And he spent a lot of time studying this. He wrote a book called Roman Wives, Roman Widows. It's a good book. And uh, he, he demonstrates that there was actually a political officer that would be elected called a controller of women in first century Roman cities like Corinth. There'd be a controller of women. Now, no side remarks. Matter of fact, I can learn a lot about your marriage just by watching you right now, okay? <laughs> Men elbowing, women slapping back, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. 
there's a controller of women, and what the controller of women would do, he would be tasked to make sure that women were dressed appropriately in public. And so uh, Bruce Winter says he could, he could actually go and he could, in some cases, confiscate clothing and offer it to the gods as a sacrifice if it was a problem. And this whole experience, of course, would be very humili- uh, humiliating to women. He's a controller of women. But what Winter does in the book is he, he shows that within the first century, there was uh, a, an ancient sexual revolution going on. Ancient sexual revolution in which there was the emergence of the new Roman woman. And one of the marks of the new Roman woman is she did not want to come under the old customs of Rome. And so one of the ways she demonstrated this is she would cast off the clothing that would normally be used by women, and she would dress like a man, dress like a man. See, some of the things that, you feel like some of the things we go through in our culture are just like all these revolutionary things that the world has never seen before. But Winter's able to demonstrate this. Well, perhaps believers were replicating the attitudes and actions of these new wives in their local assembly, casting it off as a statement And so Paul is answering and dealing with problems here. For some reason, perhaps it was revolutionary, it was distracting. In verse 6, Paul seems to imply that long hair uncovered on women in the churches of Corinth was a problem. Look again at verse 6. For if a wife will not cover her head, saying, you know, this is a this is going to be a this is a command throughout here. She needs to do this. Some reason there needs to be a cover over her head or her hair. Uh, the way uh, I think Paul expresses then his solution is if she's not going to cover her head, then what she needs to do is she needs to shave her hair off. Okay? So it's very tightly groomed or bald. But then he backs away from that because I think there was something in the city of Corinth that was disgraceful about women having short hair. And so he says, you know, this isn't even an option for you in Corinth. Perhaps it was a mark of prostitution or lesbianism. or Maybe it was a a mark in that culture of of something like that, of an adulteress. We don't don't know for sure. But Paul in verses 4 through 6 requires that women cover their heads while ministering through prayer prophecy, prophecy in the church. Okay, let's move on, though. There are two obscure reasons. This is point three in the text. Two obscure reasons for head coverings in verses 7 through 10. Okay? And uh, as we go through here, this is going to be, once we get through these verses, it'll all open up and be easy. But this is a tough passage, right? Verses 7 through 10, it gets very interesting because Paul gives two reasons why women should cover their heads, and both of them are difficult. The first reason in verses 7 through 9, I would summarize this way. To get this summary, I think you understand verses 7 through 9. First, women should cover their heads because man's glory does not deserve worship. Okay, does that sound strange? Good. Now let's, let's look and see if we can. Man's glory does not deserve worship. Look at verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of of the man, or the male. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Okay, so what's going on 
here. Well, he starts in verse 7 with this premise. Men, mankind, is created in the image and glory of God. Of course, we know from the Old Testament that both men and women are in the image of God. We're both created in the image and likeness of God. Although at the fall, God's image was distorted in mankind, every man and woman of every ethnicity is made in the image of God. And uh, for those of us who are saved, God is in the process of restoring that image completely again. And that will happen of course, perfectly again in heaven. Both men and women are created in the image of God. But he says there, man is the image of God. And then he says, man is the glory of God. Okay? And of course, glory of God, we looked at that concept already in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The glory of God is the sum attributes, the sum weight of all of God's attributes. It's his weight. And we know that we as human beings can relate to the glory of God in that we can ascribe glory to him. We can give glory to him by the way we choose to live. So man is the glory of God. But then if you notice the very next statement, verse 7, that's the perplexing one to me that caused me to stay in my study for those hours and hours and hours. What does Paul mean when he says that woman is the glory of the man? Do you see it in your Bible? Does it perplex you? Good. I want you to be perplexed. I was for hours. You need to be as well, just for a minute at least. What does Paul mean when he says that woman is the glory of the man. While women are able to glorify God, I, I peer what, what it appears to me that he's saying is that women somehow also ascribe honor or glory to men as well. And this is true for Paul in verses 8 and 9 because of uh, the fact that woman is sourced out of the man. She came out of the man, so she glorifies men. And it's also true for Paul, because if you look at the end of verse 9, he says, not only is she sourced in man, but she was designed initially for me, for his enjoyment and for his relationship. Okay, and so her purpose or design is in this way as well. She can assign glory to her man, whether it's her father or husband, by the way that she lives. But that leads me to what I, I believe is an implied reason why women are to wear head coverings in this culture in the first century, okay? And the way I would state it is this way. Women must cover their heads because they represent the glory of men. You say, well, that doesn't really help very much, right? Well, let me try to explain. It, it appears to me that Paul implies a reason for women to wear head coverings in verses 7 through 9. Men must not cover their head in worship because their direct authority is Jesus, it's Christ. Whereas women must cover their, head, their physical head in worship because her metaphorical head is the man. And when she veils her physical head, it would be a sign or a symbol okay, that worship was not about her, her, her man. But worship is all about the glory of of God. So this act is a symbolic veiling of the representative of the human race, the man. So worship is about God's glory, not man. Let me give you just a few statements from some theologians that might help you understand this better than I have. David Peterson said, if woman is the glory of the man, the apostle desires women to dress in a way as to keep people from gawking at man's glory in the church. I think that's getting to where I'm, what, what I'm trying to say. 
Ben Witherington says it this way. He says, she, the woman, must cover her head so that only God's glory is reflected in Christian worship. Or uh, my advisor in Australia, I have to throw him in there, right? My advisor, he says, all eyes should be focused on God's glory in the midst of his holy people. Or probably, this is the best statement, the clearest statement of the principle I'm trying to establish. Mark Taylor says, the veiling of the woman has to do with the fact that she is man's glory. The purpose of the veil, then, is that people should not gaze on that which is man's glory in worship, since the focus is on God's glory in worship. Okay, so one of the reasons I think that a woman is to uh, cover her head in this setting is because her head represented, her physical head represented her metaphorical head, man. A few weeks ago, Paul says, Paul said in chapter 10, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the, what? Glory of God. And in this text, he's giving the Corinthian women a very, a, a very small glimpse. This is one way that they can glorify God and make sure that worship is about him in their assembly. Okay? So are we ready to move on? Yeah, we got to, right? Okay, so he's given these two reasons. First, women should cover their heads because man's glory does not deserve worship. Okay, but look at verse 10. I promise you this is the last really difficult concept in the text. Women should also cover their heads because of the angels. Oh, that's pretty easy, right? Look with me at verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Because of the angels. What does Paul mean here? What are these angels? Well, I'll save you a lot of time and energy, and we're running late, of course, uh, this morning. But, but uh, I'll, I'll just cut right to the chase. I think that he's describing angels here because angels are the guardians of God's worship. One of the interesting things that put me onto this is the fact that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 some words that he doesn't use anywhere else in the New Testament. The words cover and covering are actually used four times here, but nowhere else in the entire New Testament. And so uh, one of the interesting things to me, though, is in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of this, this word is used often, though. And I think that Paul might have a text of Scripture in mind. For just a moment, turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And I think this text will be helpful to us because it mentions coverings. It mentions worship. And actually, it's also helpful because it mentions angelic beings. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 is an important text in the Old Testament. Because Isaiah gives his vision of God. Many of you love this text, right? Because Isaiah's disclaimer about God, his exclamation about God is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We read it today. We sang about it often. But look with me in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, angelic beings. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So it's actually a statement of the seraphim. 
And the foundation of the threshold shook at, at the voice of him who called, and the, vo- and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This passage, the seraphim cover their face and their feet with wings. And the same word is used for cover that's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. These angels are powerful, created beings, and they approach God with a covering. Another important observation from the Old Testament I'd add to this is angels uh, not only approach God with a covering, they're also present when the church worships God. Think of uh, Psalm 138 and verse 1. You don't have to turn there. But the psalmist says, I give thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart before the angels. I sing your praise. And so when Paul says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, women should cover their head because of the angels, it's a mysterious statement. He doesn't tell us what that means. But I want to suggest that Paul is saying something like women should cover their heads because angels would be repulsed at the audacity of a woman not to do so. That angels are attempting, would, would protect the dignity of God when men and women gathered to worship. And so in that setting, in that culture, that time, angels would be offended at a woman casting off the head covering. Okay? Those were the two obscure reasons. Now, Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11, and I can work very quickly through the rest of the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, Paul gives this important disclaimer. It's more important than I'll have time to give to it today. I mean, there's just a lot you can say about it. I'll, I'll say it clearly, though. Look at verse 11. Paul says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of the woman. For as woman was made from the man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. This is an important disclaimer from the Apostle Paul because he's describing the interdependence of men and women. Okay? And I think that he is, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's uh, anticipating some misconceptions that people could take away from what they've been reading about the role of men and women in worship. And so, just to protect against a subordinate view of women that would treat them as like lesser beings or something, as if they're not equal to men in essence. Paul says, I want to remind you all that you're all dependent upon each other. God originally created man of the dust of the ground. Then he created woman from the side of the man. But now, both men and women come through the womb of a woman. So I think what he's basically doing, he's saying here, men... Don't get too high and mighty. Remember, you're really dependent on women for your own physical existence. You came right from the woman. And so uh, he is laying out here what I call the interdependence of men and women upon each other. This is an important disclaimer. And then in verses 13 through 16, he gives three final appeals for head coverings. He pulls out all the stops in his closing argument here, and he uh, suspects maybe this, this could be a difficult area For the Corinthians to adjust. And so in verse 13, he appeals to common sense. Look at verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? He's appealing to their common sense as New Testament followers of Jesus Christ. This should be self-evident to good people like you. Should women cast off the head covering? And then he appeals to nature. Verses 14 and 15. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? 
for hair is given to her for a covering. Nature here, I think, might speak of the way things are or the regular, normal order of things. And so perhaps Paul means that nature itself teaches us that there's a distinction between men and women. Okay, and, and we could get into, we could try to guess exactly what that is, I, but, but Paul says in this text one way that nature teaches it is the natural length of a woman's hair. The natural length of a woman's hair is compared to men's hair. Um, but we must move on to the last appeal in verse 16, and that is the appeal to common church practice. Common sense should tell you that women should cover their heads in this setting. Nature should point this out, and so should common church practice. Verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. I think what Paul is doing in this statement is, is he's saying, if you have women casting off head coverings and coming in with loose flowing hair, that's abnormal. That's not like any other church that I'm ministering to. And you should come under and follow normal church practice. Okay? So what we just did is we worked through the text. Okay? And I appreciate the way you kind of followed along. Now what I want to do, just for a few moments, I want to talk about practical ramifications. Okay? You've been suppressing it, right? All along the way. So let's, let's look at that a little bit. There are different ways that good Christians approach this text when they start asking questions about today. I will refer you to an article that you can find online, an author by the name of Daniel Wallace. And it's his views, these four views, that I want to give you here. You could find the article online, and he explains them. This, these are the ways that people will treat the first practical question. The first practical question is, are women supposed to wear head coverings today? Okay, and, and here's the way that different evangelical Christians take this. Some people believe you won that this text is culturally bound to the first century and that there's no application for the church today. Okay, so, so there are some very good Christian people who say it's all first century stuff, things are completely different, and there's absolutely no application of this passage today. However, I think there are, a few, there are some theological principles established here that I want to be sensitive to. The second view, maybe perhaps you, you might hold one of these uh, ways of looking at the question or answering it. Or you might know people. The second way of looking at this is that view two, these are real head coverings in the first century, and real head coverings must be worn today by women when they pray or prophesy in the church. Okay? And so very good people hold this as well. There are entire denominations that almost enforce it. Um, I know the Grace Brethren, for instance, are very well known for this. But, you know, in every church I think I've ever been in, there have been evangelical women who study this text, and they feel compelled to wear head coverings when they pray or they participate in worship services, okay? And so good people hold that as well. The third view is that uh, this text, in, in chapter uh, 11, Paul is trying to get to the place where he says that a woman's hair is her covering, okay? Now, he does say that in verse 15, a woman's hair is given to her for a covering, but when you go up to verse 6, if you look at verse 6, it seems like her hair is not the covering that Paul's really going after. She can have hair, and ha it can be long, but then she's got to put a covering over top of it. Okay, so again, good people hold that. But I think the best view, just for sake of time, it, well, at least in my opinion, and you can confront me afterwards, is the head covering was a meaningful symbol 
that requires correlating symbols today. In other words, I believe that we must honor the timeless principles that this text reveals to us. Okay? And that we might do so in ways that are a bit different. And one of the reasons I think that is because there are major cultural differences between America today and the first century. Okay? Uh, let me give you just a few. Uh, in our culture today, just because a woman does not wear a covering in worship does not mean or communicate that she is not submissive or respectful to the authority of men. Okay, in, in their culture, I believe that it would have communicated that. But in our culture, if a woman doesn't wear a head covering, I don't think it communicates the same thing it did in the first century. Cultural differences. Also, just because a woman has short hair in our culture does not mean that she's masculine or an adulteress or a prostitute or something like that. So, things have changed in our culture. As a matter of fact, in our culture today, a woman wearing a head covering in worship might or could draw attention to herself more than God. It could, in our culture. And so, I would suggest that what's going on in the text is Paul's giving us theological principles and the way that we work with them as we look to apply them in different ways. Okay? Now, what principles should we honor? And for the last minute here, I'll just give you three principles I feel that our church should honor from this text. One principle that stuck out to me as I went through the text is worship is a cosmic experience, and angels are concerned with how we worship. As we approach worship, service by service, we can't do it flippantly or in a distracted manner. We should not allow ourselves to be distracted by stuff. Of course, one of the preacher's pet peeves is when we're distracted by our phone, right? It's just amazing. Little wee screen can draw our attention away from the creator God of the universe. Worship is a cosmic experience. Angels are concerned for the way we worship. And so we must not let anything distract us from focusing on a worship of God in our service. The second principle I think that we need to honor as a church is both men and women should appropriately participate in public worship. One of the striking things to me, having been born and raised in our culture in America, in, in, the, in the churches I've you know, been raised in, is that Paul takes it for granted. He assumes that women will participate in, the local ga- in their corporate gathering. He just asks that they would cover their heads when they pray or prophesy. Prophecy. And so, um, while women should kindly reflect their submission to the authority of men in worship, they are empowered to worship God in the church as well. And then the third and final principle I think that must be honored is this one. This is the main point of the text. If you fell asleep, I told you, heavy teaching. Okay? The first and last sermon you'll ever hear on head coverings. But here's the point. We must make God the consuming center of our worship. Colonial Baptist Church. No attire or worship practice or mannerism should be allowed to distract us from worshiping our Creator God. 
He is so much more important than any human being who could ever stand on this stage or in the congregation. We cannot lose focus and be drawn to personalities, men or women in worship, when God so far outshines us all in in importance. Perhaps the symbols have changed. Perhaps the culture has changed. But our hearts must fix on God in worship. Him alone. Him alone. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of working through this text. It's a difficult text. It's a hard text. And yet I'm so thankful for it. Because at the heart of the text, you say, man is for the glory of God. Lord, I would pray that you would protect us as a church in our corporate worship. I pray that we would not engage in distracting things that would draw attention or focus to self in worship instead of the consuming center of our worship, the center of the theological universe, God, the creator who deserves all glory. Lord, thank you for a text that reminds us of that. And I pray that you give us wisdom as we apply the principles of this text to the way we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.